Heavenly Father, please we pray, uh, bless us through this passage of Scripture this morning. Open our eyes to what it's saying to us, and uh, bless us through it, and guide us as to then how we live our lives uh, under the, the good rule of Christ. Amen. Uh, so we've already said that Paul is now going to continue to explore our relationship with God's law. And what he does is, um, it's quite clever, because we all... Uh, understand and learn something better when somebody embodies it uh, in a personal story of their own life. And that's what he does. He now tells his own story. Uh, For the remainder of chapter 7, Paul gets personal. He shares something of his own spiritual journey. Uh, You'll notice he speaks in the first person, I. Uh, In verses 7 to 13, he's looking back. He's looking back to his experience of God's law before he became a Christian. Uh, You'll notice that uh, in verses 7 to 13, he speaks in the past tense. But then in verses 14 to the end of the chapter, uh, it changes, the tense changes. Uh, It moves to the present tense. And so in that section, he's speaking of his experience as a Christian, his experience. And so uh, let's look firstly then at verses 7 to 13, when Paul looks back on his pre-Christian life. What does he see? In relation to God's law, he sees this. God's good law reveals and provokes the sin within. In chapters 5 and 6, God's law has been very closely associated with sin and death. It appears that Paul is quite negative about God's law. And it seems to be in complete contrast with the, what we see in the Old Testament. I think about Psalm 119, that hugely long psalm, where it's all about God's law. And in Psalm 119, we see the Old Testament believer delights in God's law. And look at, for example, Psalm 119, verses 15 to 16. I meditate on your precepts, and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. But now when, it, when the, the Jews will be hearing Paul explain uh, what he's saying about the law, it seems very negative. And so Paul anticipates an objection. Uh, Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Uh, Is the law sin? His answer is not long in coming, but in answering it, he explains more of the positive purpose of God's good law. Uh, Verse 7 continues. Uh, Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. You see, God's law declares God's standard. And when we benchmark ourselves against it, we find we fall short of it. In defining sin, God's law reveals the sin within. But God's law does more. Not only does it reveal sin, but it also provokes it. Uh, Paul has seen this in his own experience. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. See what he's saying? Uh, In some way, 
law, God's law, provokes our sinful nature to rebel against it. You see, above the HQ of our sinful nature is hoisted the flag of self-rule. And nobody but nobody is going to tell us how to live our lives. And when we are faced with the demands of God's law, our sinful nature pushes back. Okay, I'm going to try a little experiment with you. Uh, I'm going to put uh, an image on the screen in a moment. And when I do so, I want you to think, what is your initial reaction when you see this? Okay. How do you do? Well, I can only share from my experience, but when I see a sign like that, the first thing I want to do is to remove my shoes and socks and trample all over the grass. The law provokes me. I want to rebel against it. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm uh, more fallen than all of us. But uh, the point is, the law provokes a reaction from within. Uh, St. Augustine, the uh, 4th century theologian and great church leader, uh, this was his experience as well before he became a Christian. Uh, in his book, uh, The Confessions, he reflects on what happened uh, in his youth. He recounts how one day uh, there was a, a pear orchard next to his own house, and one day he broke into this orchard and stole some pears. And later he reflects on this incident and why he did it. And he says this, uh, why did I steal the pears? I wasn't hungry. And even if I did, was hungry, I don't even like pears. After he stole the pears, he actually he said he, he threw them to the pigs after eating just one. Uh, he didn't like them. Uh, so he says, why on earth did I steal the pears? And his answer is this. He says, I stole the pears because somebody told me they were forbidden. In other words, somebody says, thou shalt not take the pears. And he said, there was something within me which said, take them. He said, I have no interest in pears, but once I heard that command, I reacted against it. So you see, uh, there is a part in every heart that cries, nobody tells me how to live. It's part of our, it's our sinful nature within. So, you see, God's law stirs our sinful nature to act and react, and in so doing, uh, it brings death. Look at verse 9. Paul says this, At once I was alive, apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. Now, it's important to ask, in what sense was Paul, and I quote, alive apart from the law? And in what sense did he die? Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, particularly Philippians chapter 3, that Paul was an impeccable Hebrew and Jew. He came from the right family line. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had a thoroughly deep Jewish upbringing. And therefore, coming from a devout family, he would have been taught the law from his earliest age. So when he says that there was a time when he was apart from the law, he cannot mean that he was unaware of God's law. For Paul, there would never have been a time when that was the case. So rather, he must mean this. There was a time when he hadn't seen 
or understood what God's law really meant. He had not realized the depth of what the law required. And in that sense, he saw himself at that stage as being alive. Uh, It was his own self-perception. He misguidedly felt that he was spiritually alive, that he was pleasing God, and that he was meeting God's demands. But he says this, It was only when the commandment came home to him that he saw his sin for what it truly was. Uh, Prior to this, he'd had this superficial understanding of God's law. But when it came home to him, when he truly understood the law and its demands, it killed his self-confidence. He realized he was a sinner in serious trouble. Uh, His proud self-confidence of being alive to God as a Pharisee died. It's interesting that in recounting his own story, uh, Paul specifically refers to the sin of coveting. Uh, Pharisees, of course, tended to think of sin only in terms of external actions. Uh, They would look at the Ten Commandments and say, hey, uh, I've not bound down to an idol. Uh, I've not killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. Hey, I'm doing quite well. I'm in the clear. But when they got to the Tenth Commandment, not to covet, that confidence begins to wobble. You see, coveting is not something external. It's internal. Coveting is all to do with the attitude of the heart. And when Paul reflects on the Tenth Commandment, he suddenly sees the depth of the sin in his heart. He realizes, as he reflects on this commandment, he's actually a law breaker. Uh, When he looks at his own heart, holding the the, the law of this standard against it, he sees all sorts of covetous desires. And so now he perceives a great irony. Uh, God's law that was intended to bring life actually delivers death. Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. It's interesting to think about how sin deceives people. In our secular society, many people have a deep suspicion even hostility towards God, uh, they have no time for Christianity. Uh, Hidden deep within their hearts is the belief that true life resides in being unencumbered by the shackles of God and His law. The good life is being free to live as you please. And the sad reality is that sin has deceived them. What they think is the path to true life is actually the descent to true death. So in summary, uh, Paul observes that the flaw was not in God's holy law, but in his sinful heart. Look at verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Uh, That said, is God's law a killer? 
And he answers, no, it was sin that killed him, working through what was good. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. So do you see? The law performs this merciful service. The law puts to death any skewy notions that through our own merits we might be acceptable to God. The law puts to death any sense of self-righteousness in ourselves. When we read God's law properly, and when we look at our own lives honestly, there is only one conclusion we should draw. In ourselves, we are sinful and lost. And without accepting this, we will never grasp the glory of the gospel. And we will never truly appreciate the gift of righteousness that Jesus offers. It's only if our hearts truly cry at our utter sinfulness that we can know the hope and the liberation of looking away from ourselves and looking to the Lord Jesus. So, that is the first half of the section we're looking at today. But where does this leave those who have come to Christ in faith? If we've been legally delivered from the law and from sin, where does that leave us in our experience as a Christian thereafter? Uh, will we be free from sin in our daily experience as a Christian? Uh, will we delight in God's law as did the psalmist, or will we ignore it? And from verses 14 to 25 now, Paul moves from past to present tense, and he talks of his experience now as a Christian. In his experience of the Christian life, Paul has found there is now a constant battle within that there is a tension between his intentions and his actions. He says he has the desire to do what is good, but often he finds that he cannot do it. Uh, despite good desires and the best of intentions, he still does evil instead. Look at verse 14. Uh, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. What accounts for this frustrating state of affairs? Well, in verses 17 to 18, the culprit is identified. Uh, Paul sees that his old sinful nature is still within it is lurking in the shadows of his heart. There is still a powerful force of sin and rebellion within, and it's present, although it is no longer truly him. Look at verses 17 to 18. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So how can this be? 
uh, verses 21 to 23 joins the dots. Even as Christians, there is this deep splitness of good and evil within us. Uh, There is, on the one hand, a new, regenerated inner being, that that part of us now that delights in God's law. But there is also still the old sinful nature, which still wants to rebel against God's law. Look at verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my innermost being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Uh, The classic uh, depiction of this splitness uh, is in literature is Robert Louis Stevenson's book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, You know basically the story. Uh, Dr. Jekyll came to realize that he was what he called an incongruous compound of good and evil, of conscience and coveting. Uh, He felt because of that, that his bad nature held back his good nature. Uh, He could aspire to do things, good things, but he never followed through on them, just like what we're seeing in Romans chapter 7. And so Dr. Jackal comes up with an idea. Uh, He develops a potion. He's going to concoct a potion that will separate the two natures out from each other. He intends to drink the potion at night to let his bad side out But during the day, when he's doing his work, he'll be his good self. His good self will now be unencumbered. It will be free from the influence of the evil, and he will be able to realize all of his good goals. Well, uh, it's a nice theory, but when he takes the potion and his bad nature comes out, to his shock, he's far more evil than he ever dared believe that he was. And when Edward Hyde comes out, he starts doing terrible things, including murder. Uh, What Romans 7 is saying is what Robert Louis Stevenson is saying. They are saying the same things. Even the best Christians, even the most brilliant and decent Mr. Jackals or Apostle Pauls still have a sinful nature and Edward Hyde within. And this battle within leads Paul and us as Christians to cry an exasperated cry for relief. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But Paul's cry for relief, though desperate, is not hopeless. There is a certain answer Verse 25, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Every Christian has this deep splitness within. Uh, The strange case of Dr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has a dramatic conclusion. 
I'm sure it's not a spoiler if I tell you how things work out. Uh, the book has been out, after all, since 1886. You've had plenty of time since then to hear the plot. Uh, finally, Dr. Jekyll says, I'm going to try and stop it. I'm going to try to repress this evil side. However, he can't. Edward Hyde, the dark side, gets the upper hand more and more. And when Dr. Jekyll realizes that he's about to lose control and be completely subsumed by Edward Hyde, he resorts to finally killing himself. It's not a happy ending. I think Hollywood would probably struggle with this one. Uh, but this is where the story of Dr. Jekyll and the Christians diverge. For the Christian, there will be a happy ending. Uh, the days of the sinful nature within are numbered. The Edward Hyde within will not ultimately prevail. When he returns, Jesus Christ will rescue us from this body of death. The sinful nature will be eradicated once and for all time. So in conclusion, how does this apply to the Christian? Uh, do you find the Christian life a struggle at times? Uh, do you grow through periods when you are weary and discouraged by the strength of temptation and your weakness to resist it? Are you discouraged by a besetting sin which keeps tripping you up? Well, here's the good news. You are quite normal. Uh, Paul is painting the picture of the normal Christian life. Sin can no longer condemn us, but it still seeks to cripple us. We are released from the realm of sin, but the sinful nature still exists. And therefore, there is a struggle. And there has to be. The Christian has two natures that are at war with each other. And the struggle points to the presence, indeed, of that new self, the new inner being. Uh, soberingly, if there is no struggle in your life with sin, it begs the question, is there truly that new inner self? A constant battle with sin is the hallmark of the normal Christian life. So you see, various implications flow out of that. It means this. Nobody becomes so advanced in the Christian life that they no longer see or struggle with sin. Uh, the opposite is very the case. If ever you could describe someone as a mature believer, of course it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, what is his experience? The more he progresses in the Christian life, the more he sees the sin within. The more he cries out, O wretched man that I am, the more he becomes sensitive to the sin within. So the point is this, the more we grow and mature as Christians, the more we will see sin in our hearts. Uh, temptation and conflicts with sin, even some relapses into sin are a normal part of the Christian life. That's what it means to grow as a Christian. But we keep on in that journey and we keep kind of trying to put sin to death in our lives. But we don't just do it in our own strength. And that's what we're going to see next week when we get to chapter 8. While we wait for Christ's return, uh, God does not leave us to engage in this battle on our own. 
He blesses every Christian with the gift of his spirit. And the indwelling spirit we're going to see next week helps us in that battle with the sin within. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for Scripture, which gives us this x-ray of our hearts and our lives. It shows us uh, this true reality of the dual nature, if you like, which Christians now have, of the, the good new uh, inner being regenerated by your Spirit, but also the remnant of the old being, the sinful nature still being there. So please, we pray, uh, help us to use your law well, uh, to see its true intent not just on external actions, but indeed on the motives and attitudes of our heart. We pray the Lord would do the good work in all of our hearts, helping, exposing sin and helping us to see it and to cry out to Christ to save us from it. And we pray indeed that your spirit would help us in that ongoing battle with sin, that as we grow as Christians, uh, we would uh, continue in that battle, uh, putting sin to death in our hearts and lives, living out that new relationship we have with Christ uh, that marriage relationship with Christ, uh, living lives which bear fruit for him. Amen.